is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Since this is an adult podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language being used. If this might offend ears around you, be sure to pop in your headphones before listening to this episode. Today's episode of Beyond the Studio is brought to you by Storyblocks, an amazing stock video, audio, and image service that's royalty-free and pays their artists 100%. Check out videoblocks.com slash beyondthestudio for a special offer on their year-long membership. Before we jump into this episode, we have a couple updates for you, one of which is that we won a grant, and Nicole's going to tell you a little bit more about that in a second. And we also, which I'm sure you just noticed, have advertising. So we've got lots that we want to update you on. And as part of our policy with creating this podcast, we intend to be fully transparent about all of these new steps and everything that we've learned and some of our experiences that you haven't heard about yet. So we're going to be sharing those at an end of season one episode that we are actually going to have at the very beginning of 2018. We're extremely thrilled to have just been awarded an alternative exposure grant from Southern Exposure here in San Francisco. Southern Exposure is a nonprofit that supports visual artists within the Bay Area and beyond. And Alternative Exposure, their grant program, now in its 11th round of funding, is part of a regional regranting program supported by the Andy Warhol Foundation and supports independent and self-organized work by artists that plays a critical and significant role within the San Francisco Bay Area arts community. With this grant, we'll be kicking off a new mini-series of the podcast called Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. Since launching the Beyond the Studio podcast in June of this year, we have interviewed artists from across the United States, including San Francisco, New York, Baltimore, Michigan, Ohio, Miami, and Los Angeles, and we realized the importance of place in artists' careers. This is a conversation we really want to get more into, starting with interviewing artists from throughout the West Coast. We'll be doing a little year-end reflecting in our first episode of 2018, where we'll talk more about where we're headed along with the process of applying for grants so you can look forward to that in early January of next year. We also as part of that episode want to give you the opportunity to ask us any questions that you may have so we're going to use that as a Q&A time. So we would love it if you would submit any questions that you have via email to beyondthestudiopodcast at gmail.com or if you follow us on Instagram you can slide into our DMs with any questions and if you're on Facebook you can reach out there too. All of this is available on our website, beyondthe.studio. You can even actually submit any questions directly on our website. But we'd just like to extend our gratitude to Southern Exposure for their support and thank you all so much for listening and being a part of this creative community, helping to foster a more transparent dialogue amongst artists here through Beyond the Studio. And now, back to the show. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are talking with Cindy Chang, a Baltimore-based artist. 
and most notably and recently the recipient of the 2017 uh, Sondheim Prize, which is Baltimore's most prestigious art award. Uh, it includes uh, $25,000 unrestricted grant money, as well as an exhibit alongside uh, all of the finalists at the Walters Art Museum. Uh, Cindy has also been a finalist for the Trawick Prize and a semi-finalist in the past for the Sondheim Prize as well. She graduated with her BA from uh, Mount Holyoke College and a post-baccalaureate and master's degree from MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art, where she currently teaches uh, in the drawing department. Um, as well as exhibits her work um, throughout Baltimore and beyond. So, Cindy, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to talk with you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, would you like to give us a little more of an introduction into yourself and your own personal history, uh, like where you grew up and how you um, eventually found your way to Baltimore, where you are now? I had kind of like a, a nomadic upbringing. So I was born in Hong Kong mm -hmm. and I, I, I lived there until I think I was like three or four. And then my parents moved us to Vancouver. But my dad had uh, like he was building up this business that was based in Hong Kong. So we went back and forth a lot. But like my mother and my I have a twin brother. Um, so my mother and my twin oh. and I Yeah, yeah, we stayed in um, we stayed in Vancouver, like during the academic year. And then we would like, you know, mm -hmm. go see my dad over vacations. Uh, so we were in Vancouver until I want to say I was like nine or 10 or something. And then we moved back to Hong Kong for uh a couple of years and then my brother and I went to boarding school in Hawaii which oh, wow. yeah it was it was pretty awesome when people when I tell that to people they're like oh <laughs> how lush <laughs> you know and it's like yes there were part of the parts of the islands that were um like really beautiful uh but the part that we were on it was actually like a ranch um so it was actually kind of really uh, mm. like arid uh, and, oh. and desert-like. Yeah, it, it was a very different landscape. And there were a lot of cows. And it was really funny because... <laughs> happy cows. <laughs> they, were, they were actually happy, very friendly cows. And you could tell when people were like hiking up the hill because like the cows would follow the people up the hill. Oh so there'd be this like mass movement. Um, so yeah, and then after high school, I went to Maholiot College, um, which is in uh, Western Massachusetts, and it's part of like the Five College Consortium, which was really fabulous. And that's where I took my first uh, art classes. Uh, and initially, um, like my high school was in, was super academic, and so I I went to college thinking I was going to be like you know, an English major or like, you know, going to something like journalism or something like that. Yeah. Um, and my parents were like really happy about that. And then I had to take an art class uh, to fulfill a, a requirement. And it was wow. an amazing class. Yeah, it was a, a drawing class. And uh, I, had a, I had a fabulous teacher who I'm still in touch with now. Um, she teaches at Fordham University now. But it was, it was amazing. And then I, so I switched my major a little bit later. And yeah, and that was that. And then after college, I kind of just like wandered. And I think a lot of people like can relate to this. Like I wasn't sure what mm -hmm. I wanted to do. And I was like, oh, it's so unrealistic unreal to like want to be an artist, you know, so and I didn't even really know if I like wanted to do that because um, 
like getting a BA is very different than getting a, a BFA, like what, you know, uh, people at MICA get. Uh, the the balance of, of liberal arts and, and studio classes is very different. So I actually didn't have a fantastic sense of what it was like to have a studio practice. You know, like I took classes and yeah. it was very isolated. And I like the idea of doing work outside of school was like, I didn't even think to do that, you know? So it was like extremely, mm-hmm. it was just very like uh, segmented. So when I got out of school, uh, I was just kind of like floating around and I ended up back in Hong Kong and uh, working in an art gallery. And I, I, it was really hard to get that job. Like it's, it's in incredibly the art scene in Hong Kong is like incredibly commercial and it's just not it's not it, it especially like back in the early 2000s when I was there it just it was very um like nascent you know uh so but I like cold called I just like walked into galleries and I was like are you looking for wow. a gallery assistant and like I, I think I and did you I think know I any other up, artists in the city like did you have any no. kind of connections as far as no, okay. zero. So it was really zero. just walking in and introducing yeah. yourself. And- with my resume, which was very sparse, you know, <laughs> and I was like, I know how to write English pretty well. <laughs> and that was like my my hook, you know. Yeah. I, I think I went to like, uh, like 30, 30 galleries or like something like oh that. Gosh, um, wow. Yeah, pretty much all the galleries in the city and uh, only one. I know only one was like, oh, yeah, okay, but we're not really going to pay you. And I was like, that's fine. I just want, you know, I just want a job. So I worked there for a couple of years and then they ended up paying me um, after after a little good, while. Good. <laughs> yeah, but it was like a super weird experience. It was like, it was just like selling. It was like interior decoration you know it was like Mm -hmm. I have a couch that I want a like a painting to really match and can you like show me some paintings you know and then they would like take out paintings and it was like a showroom it was it was just bizarre and it was very different than um like my understanding of of art uh just based on classes that I had taken in college you know because like art classes were taught by working artists who lived in New York you know so like they were telling us about what art was like for them making work showing work their community and I was just like this is completely different you know so after after a couple of years um I was still in touch with my with my drawing instructor and I I was constantly emailing her and I think she got the sense that I was like getting really frustrated and and um so she was like well have you started like drawing or painting again? And I had gotten this small studio and I was kind of like dabbling around. And she was like, you need to decide if like you want to actually have a creative life or if this is something that you just want to shed entirely and just like, you know, do something that is different because this is not meeting your needs. It's not fulfilling. So you need to you need to figure this out. And so she she gave me she told me that postback programs would be like an ideal place to, you know, get a sense of what it was like to actually have a sustainable studio life. So um, and she she actually recommended I think she she gave me Micah and Brandeis. Um, and I looked at uh, both programs and I just I really liked Micah. I I enjoyed the work that was being produced in all of the programs. And I talked to some of the folks in grad admissions and grad studies, and they were wonderful. So 
it, it was actually the only program that I applied for. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and it worked out and it was great. And just for anyone who might not be familiar with how a post-bac program might be different than going straight to grad school, can you yeah. just explain um, what that program is all about? Yeah, the post-bac program, it's a one-year program versus like a two-year for, for an MFA or like an undergrad four-year program. And it is modeled on the structure of a graduate program. So you have your own studio. There's Bill Schmidt is like the director and he has an assistant director that's pretty standard you uh, engage with visiting artists uh, very similar to what uh, people in an MFA program would do um, and you're essentially uh, it just in this like smallish community I mean I think the postback program at Micah when I was there it was like 20 20 people or something so it was pretty big but uh, it's just like intense making and it's really interesting because the people who are attracted to postback programs are a little bit more diverse in their background than possibly like people who go to an MFA because it is kind of this place to figure out if you even want to be an artist it attracts folks who have had careers already you know um or mm-hmm. and, and it also attracts people who are coming out of like state universities or liberal arts schools uh, I actually met my husband in the postback program Joe oh wow yeah yeah and so like he was straight out of Vassar College you know so Okay. Yeah, so it was a very different environment, but he wanted to so, kind of similar to me figure out if like being an artist was something that he was really into, like serious about. And then we had this guy who was like 70 years old um, and he had had a, a whole career as a physics professor in New Mexico. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so, but he loved painting and so he had retired and wanted to really kind of like delve into studio work. And so he came to the postback because it has structure because it is still an academic program. So it was really good. And we had, um, again, I think uh, different than the MFA, we did have course requirements just to fill in gaps in like skill sets, uh, which a lot of people who go into post-bac programs like don't necessarily have this huge range of skills that someone getting out of MICA as an undergrad would have, you know? So um, it was a, it was kind of an attempt to be like, okay, so you're into painting, but you might not have um, certain, certain fundamental skills. So let's, you know, get you into those classes. So that was actually really great. Um, and I, I got to take undergrad classes and get to know some of the students. And it was like incredibly inspiring and very intimidating. I mean, the, the undergrads at MICA are, amazing you know and I couldn't believe that they were like 19 (laughs) you know like doing the work that they were doing so it was it was like eye-opening it was a great experience so the thing about the postback program is that um uh a lot of people kind of see it as a feeder into grad schools so they have this expectation that like you do postback and then you apply to grad school and you go to grad school like straight after but that means that you have to apply almost immediately after getting into getting to the postback program because of the deadlines and yeah right because like everything's due in like january and february um and you haven't even had time about it (laughs) exactly and it's like well that's what we're doing here is like trying to figure out what it means to have uh you know practice. So I didn't apply for grad school right away. Uh, I just wanted to make full use of that year, yeah. uh, just experiment and be able to fail. Like that's postback was when the idea of like failure as not this negative thing, but as a really productive platform started to enter my my practice. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give myself the opportunity and um, the luxury to do that. Uh, so 
I, I did my full year and then I took a year after that to just continue working in the studio and to just sort of like, you know, work. I, I did, I was a, um, the assistant to a, the education director of Young Audiences of Maryland, which is like this, uh, this nonprofit arts organization. Yeah. So um, like I was working, I had a studio that I shared with some of my friends from Postback. And then I applied for grad school. And again, I was looking like I had this uh, mentality that I didn't want to do that thing that like that blanket application process where you apply to like 20 schools, you know, and then you just like throw those darts and see what hits. I was like, it's really expensive to apply to grad school. I don't want to spend that kind of money. Yeah. um, And you can't possibly be interested in like 20 different programs, you know, like you just, you're, you're just, it's just so unlikely. And so I actually like, I looked at the programs that I, you know, um, I knew about and I found, I found more and I was just, uh, was looking at all the faculty, the types of visiting artists, the type of work that people produce, the location, all these things. And, um, I narrowed it down to like, I, wanted to apply to Micah and Hunter. Uh, Oh, and Mason Gross was really interesting to me too. But then I was like really thinking about it and I was like, I just want to go to Micah. That's like the only school that I want to go to because I love Francis, um, who was the director of Mount Royal at the time. Uh, And the work that was being produced at at Micah was insane. You know, like when I was a postback, like Jimmy Joe Roche was uh, Mm -hmm. one of the, the, the students in, Matt Royal, Robbie Ratcliffe was there, you know, it was just like a crazy class and they they were doing kooky things and I was so interested Mm -hmm. in it. Uh, like Clarissa Gregory was there. It was amazing. And so I was just like, I just want to be there. So I just applied to one school again. <laughs> and <laughs> and then it worked out again. So that was great. Uh, and that's how I ended up that, like, you know, going to grad school and post-bac at Micah. It was a long road, but it was really pretty, pretty fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. I love how confident you were in that decision, too. <laughs> like, despite, you know, being giving yourself the space to explore and taking this kind of circuitous route it's like when you knew what you wanted you were just all in and yeah the only thing (laughs) man but also like very lucky you know um so yeah I'm kind of curious even though the conversation is a little more focused on the career end of things and just you know the, the work behind the creative process um because you said you were coming in doing drawings and having that as more of a background and yeah. now you're making these really complex sculptural installations did your work also start to move in that direction within the postback program or did that not start to happen until a little bit later in grad school so I got familiar with the idea of this radical transformation in what you do like not not hanging on to an identity um an artistic identity uh in in postback so like I went I got into the program with paintings you know and and then when I got there I was doing a lot of paintings and my faculty started showing me all these artists who who sort of like worked with different types of media but sort of in the same with the with similar kinds of ideas that I had and it kind of it made me realize that I 
I didn't have to just paint, you know, like if I wasn't interested in just doing painting, like I could do just drawing or I could do video or I could do sculpture. So actually I just, I shifted to, to drawing because drawing is what I kind of love the most and it feels the most natural. It's like my natural language. Mm-hmm. And when I sit down or am in the studio, my inclination is to draw. Um, so I just kind of allowed myself to do that in post back. So the work that I ended up doing over that year by the end of that year was radically different than what I was doing at the beginning. Um, there are certain themes that sort of like persist, like I'm, I'm really uh, interested in like pattern and line and, uh, you know, like thinking about composition and complexity. I'm really more of a maximalist, you know, like that's always just kind of been there. But those are also really, they're very drawing centric principles, you know, so and then when I got to grad school, I had become very like I built this vernacular that I was extremely familiar with and comfortable with by that point. And um, I went into grad school, like doing these drawings that came pretty easily. I mean, they were like a lot of labor, but it wasn't it wasn't strenuous in terms of like uh, critical thinking or anything like that. Um, like I kind of knew what I was doing. So Sarah Oppenheimer was one of our faculty, I think my first semester there, or maybe my second semester, but uh, I was kind of like getting thrown in the deep end. Uh, and she came into my studio and she just like, she took this like, like five second walk around my room. And she was like, what are you doing here? You know what you're doing, you know? Like, why are you here? If you're just going to do the same thing that you came in doing that you're so familiar with, you don't have to, like, be in school. You can do this out of school, you know? And yeah. you can find people to show this work and buy this work. Like, you don't have to be here. And she was like, if you're here, let go of what you're really familiar with and take a risk, you know? Yeah. And I, had, I, I, was, I knew that when I was in post post back, but I'd somehow kind of like lost it a little bit when I was out of post back, you know? So I, I kind of just like, I don't know, it, it precipitated this like crisis <laughs> that lasted for yeah. like a year, you know? Um, but it was really good because I was starting to experiment. Everything failed. Like I, I didn't do anything that was like what you would think of as successful traditionally, but it was really good because it was a lot of experimentation it was a lot of exploration and uh, I had another faculty member uh, David Brody who was just like oh man he like he would come into my studio and just be like I don't understand what you're doing with this like you know you don't have any clarity of thought with this you know you keep you keep kind of like picking things up and then not extending your research and you know he was just like extremely direct Uh, and that was also really great Um, and he was like if you're gonna risk if you're gonna like like take a risk and and actually do things that potentially fail like really step into that don't just like put a toe in there and so um that kind of like got me sort of just pushed me into investing a lot more into these unfamiliar modes of making so that's kind of how I started making sculptures or sculptural drawings I mean at first they were just drawings that I cut up and let come off the wall you know but then like they became more solid they became kind of like more dimensional they started to become freestanding so it was this very natural process Um, but that all happened in in grad school towards the very end of grad school too it was like this very compressed amount of evolution. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but it was yeah. it was tough. It was hard. Yeah, I've been having a lot of conversations lately with people. I feel about process and just that idea that I think, um, especially as an artist, is kind of heightened where you're going through these cycles of building up your work and developing a language and kind of gaining confidence around it, and then at the same time being willing to continue to step out into unfamiliar territory and try and break that down. And like you said. It, to kind of encourage that process of failure within yourself or your environment. And it's just, I guess the reason that's come up is so much because I feel it's been so difficult for for me to do that, to just, you know, retain this real belief in what you're doing and be able to persist, like, you know, work through that mm-hmm. um, and, and to maintain that, that practice yeah. um, of just continuing to make work, even though you might be completely doubtful and just questioning everything you're doing. And so I think, you know, it takes a lot of initiative too. like we as people, you know, we crave comfort and we also crave like new things and spontaneity. And so I think like it's easy to sort of fall into these patterns. And I don't know, it's just, it's really good to hear that too, because I I would imagine that process never ends. That's Mm -hmm. what you're always trying to do Yeah, definitely. So sometimes you need, you know, people from the outside to just come in and kind of tell it like it is, or, you know, tell you something that maybe you don't want to hear in the moment, but it really encourages a lot of introspection. And yeah, I don't know. And, and so did you feel like at that point, the idea of what it just looked like to be an artist, um, even practically, and just to have that, that lifestyle was really starting to take shape in grad school? And like, what did those first few years after look like for you? To be honest, uh, they were a struggle. Um, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. Like, I, I knew that. That was clear. Um, and I wanted to have a studio, and I wanted to have a studio practice, and I wanted to show. But I also knew that I didn't, I, I wanted to be able able to have the space to continue to change and evolve mm-hmm. and we had quite a few visiting artists come in um, who were like oh one of the tricky things with showing commercially like if you attach yourself to a commercial gallery is that you have to be really careful because they were like there are some galleries out there that will really encourage their artists to experiment and grow you know that's like one of the tenets that they have but those are pretty rare and they said that a lot of artists get caught up in almost just becoming a production line you know and like you have to make at Mm -hmm. least like you got to make 10 big drawings and we have to sell them for $20,000 each. And you have to be able to do this in order to sustain like, you know, your value for us and stuff like that. And I knew um, that I didn't want to do that. Like that was just not interesting to me, especially just considering the route that I was going in grad school. You know, I never pursued any sort of like uh, relationship with uh, with galleries you know I was always like mm-hmm. if I if I want to show I, I wanted to do it um, at uh, you know nonprofit spaces uh, looking for open calls stuff like that like really interesting people to work with you know spaces that actually had uh, philosophies that were in line with my own philosophies um, or that were challenging uh, or I wanted to show at like artist-run spaces you know and, and Baltimore is like a great place for that so so yeah. it was it was fantastic. Um, but that also means that it's like there's not a lot of money coming into, um, you know, my bank account through my work, you know. Uh, yeah. So that was a struggle, like trying to figure out how I was going to sustain my life <laughs> mm-hmm. and, yeah. and actually like afford a studio space um, if I wasn't 
relying on selling my work. Um, so I had started teaching and that was, that's actually a, a very kind of unpredictable, unexpected turn in my career. Um, cause I actually, I hate public speaking, uh, even now, like before. So like I, I am full-time at Micah now, but that's really new. Even now, I like before the semester begins, like I can't eat, I can't sleep, I'm like nauseous, you know, because I'm yeah. just like mm-hmm. so nervous about going in front of, even though they're like 18 year olds, but they like scare me, you know? <laughs> and like, so I'm like so nervous to get up in front of them and like tell them about things that I care about. And so, but so it was, it was really unexpected that I fell into uh, uh, teaching. But even, so I found that that was really rewarding and I could, I could see myself um, like making a living ideally from teaching and then having like a studio practice that mm-hmm. it's kind of perfect because they feed each other. They kind of need each other, you know, yeah. um, especially if you're, you're teaching really at any level, but particularly like a college level. So, uh, but for a long time, for like four and a half years, it was like I was adjuncting and that's, tough you know I mean mm-hmm. it's not fair pay frankly you don't get health insurance unless you're teaching at like a state school um, and you have a certain amount of credits that you teach there then they will give you health insurance um, so mm-hmm. that so I, I did end up getting a set of teaching jobs at College Park um, and okay. through that I did get health insurance but then it was like tricky because like you know, you, you might have it for a year or for a semester, but the minute the semester ends, you're not technically right. an employee. Your contract is up again, so... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so it was yeah. so hard to figure figure all of that stuff out. So for a while, I didn't even have health insurance, you know, um, before before the Affordable yep. Care Act. Yeah. Been there. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was working with, like, saws. <laughs> and, like, yeah. you know, I was. it was so scary. It was just, like, scary, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and stressful. Uh, so the adjuncting thing was rewarding and it was great working with um, young artists and it is really inspiring to be able to especially continue working at MICA, you know, Um, but it definitely has a shelf life and um, Mm -hmm. it's just like how much stamina do you have? In the end, it's really kind of a a process of attrition, you know, like who can hang on the longest to get the full-time job, you know? Um, So... uh, Luckily, I clung on my fingernails um, and also got extremely lucky. Uh, so um, now it's kind of working out really beautifully. But it was like, it's honestly so much luck. And, and I, I, I don't like that idea that um, so much success relies on fate, you know? I mean, yeah. it, is a, it is hard work, um, but it, it's definitely also a little bit out of your hands, especially like yeah. with the with the teaching thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you start, did you jump into teaching adjunct right after grad school or were you picking up other jobs in the meantime? I had, I had a, a kind of like mishmash of jobs. So I, I was an international student. So that being on a visa does put you in uh, mm-hmm. a weird place. Um, it's not as easy. Like I couldn't pick up a job as like a barista or work mm-hmm. in like, you know, uh, be like a server. So I, I had to be able to justify my jobs as being my degree was, you know, salient to those jobs. Um, so luckily, I had that relationship with the nonprofit um, with young audiences. So they really helped me out and was like, well, you know, we don't really need someone but they they like rehired me as uh, 
the assistant to the to the teaching um, director, the education director. So I was able to kind of like have that as a part time job. And then I, I started with one teaching gig um, at Micah straight out of school. And then and then I took over for Renee Rendine's class, um, her drawing two class. So then I had two. And then the following year, I had two again at Micah and managed to pick one up at, um, or I think I picked two up at um, Anne Arundel Community College. And that was super generous of them. Um, And it was like two Saturday classes. It was like 9 a.m. Saturday morning until like 6 p.m. Saturday night. Um, And I had to like get on Ritchie Highway, which is like hell on wheels, you know, (laughs) and like um, and leave the house super early to get there and be able to prep. And so it was like it was pretty tough. It was like grueling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, any pay is good, but it wasn't great. You know, so a lot of a lot of years, um, semesters, I would kind of end kind of just even you know yeah the only reason why I was able to do that was because Joe and I had an apartment together and so we were splitting rent you know mm-hmm. I, my parents aren't supposed to know that but <laughs> um they're very traditional yeah mm-hmm. so it was it was really hard I think that's pretty that's a standard experience for um adjuncts and it was also like a lot of again cold calling you know like you would send you have to send emails to department chairs at any co- any college or, or, or community college or university that you're interested in working at and like half the time more than half the time you don't get a response you know mm-hmm. and then the other sort of percentage of times you get a response being like oh you know we might have something in a year so check back with us then you know so and then you would check back in a year and be like oh we might have something in a year <laughs> check back with right. us then so it it's like, like this perpetual yeah kind of a gamble yeah. yeah there I feel like that's definitely been a theme in uh conversations of this idea of cold calling whether it has to do with um jobs or yeah. just you know trying to get your foot in the door with any sort of opportunity and yeah being willing to kind of put yourself out there in that yeah. way but you just need one you know you just need one person yeah. out of that like <laughs> 50 people yeah yeah and then and so it's worth it it's definitely something that I think you, you should do if, if you know it it would help in any way you know um, so like I, I was cold calling or like cold emailing the director at College Park. I think I sent him like upwards of 30 emails in like two years <laughs> or something. I essentially nagged him into giving me a job, you know. Um, hey, persistence so, pays off. <laughs> I know. I know. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out to be fantastic. And he's wonderful. Um, and if I need a recommendation now, because I still do need recommendations, you know, um, it's really weird to like ask for a recommendation and also be writing recommendations for people. <laughs> but uh, like I go to him, you know, so we have a good relationship. Um, but he took my he took my persistence really well. There are some people who are like, please don't write to me again, you know, and it, yeah. it can be really embarrassing, but you just have to do it. There's no other way. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. feel like so much of it's I mean life in general, but especially like the art process can be incredibly embarrassing because you yeah. put so much of yourself into it and it's you're so vulnerable. And there have been so many times where I'm like, I believe in this, but I also am embarrassed by this whole experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's a very, that's a very familiar, <laughs> very yeah. familiar thing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think your decision to leaving grad school is, you know, that that takes a lot of self-awareness and and a level of maturity too to say I'm, I'm making the decision not to put my work out there in a certain way or not to pursue like you were saying these relationships with galleries because I want to give my work the the space to grow in the way that it needs to and um you know it just sounds like a much longer term approach. Um, and f- for some reason, like there's still this pervasive idea that that gallery relationship is going to fill so many needs um, for for you as an artist. And um, so being willing, I think, to step back from that and to really kind of know what you might need at a given point in time um, is really valuable. And I'm also really curious, um, just because in your experience of applying to colleges, it's like you've, you found the place that you wanted to be, and then you really kind of put all your eggs in one basket there. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the same applies with other kinds of opportunities? Um, cause on the other end, you're, you're just, you know, cold calling all these schools, um, in seeking employment. But when it comes to say showcasing your work, um, do you, kind of take the approach more of just casting a wide net and you're constantly applying to things or is it a little more selective? I think when I was, uh, so when I was straight out of school, I, I was kind of casting a wider net. I mean, I was selective in the sense that like, I did actually look at the shows that um, yeah, whatever, like spaces put on or galleries put on that I was applying to. And if I liked the show, then I, I would apply it to that. Luckily, I like a lot of work. So that was pretty broad, <laughs> you know. Uh, so in, in that way I was selective but I was applying to like a lot of a lot of stuff you know um in a lot of different places and getting very few things you know but I think if I hadn't done that I wouldn't have gotten anything at all you know and so um yeah so I think it's it's slightly slightly different but I think that you know we all we all have our principles and and I do think that it's important to kind of like have have an eye on that while you're trying to like get your work out there too I had a slightly broader Uh, approach to getting my work out there and then now um I can I'm still accepting like anything pretty much that comes my way um but in terms of like applying like I'm not applying to as many things as I was before I feel like um I can sort of like be a little bit more selective, you know, um, not not by much at all by any <laughs> stretch of them, but a little bit. Um, so it's and hopefully as I, you know, get more experience and my work gets out there more and hopefully I'll be able to be even more selective and, you know, so um, and really just be able to sort of like show with projects that I I am really, really invested and interested in. And I also love the idea of being able to ultimately do things that are a little bit more long term, you know, so be like, I know that I'm going to have a show at a place like two years from now and be able to actually like create a body of work that's really substantial or have a project um, that's ongoing for a little while that I'm, I'm working collaboratively with people um, over that span of time to create something that is, you know, again, uh, like a little bit more evolved and developed. Um, so that w- that's like kind of my my goal right now is to, to get to a point where that's a possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that you are taking the time to consider the types of projects that you take on and the types of places that you would want to show at. And I think it's so easily or so easy, especially after school to get in the mindset of like, I have to do everything. Like I can't say no to anything. I have to try to get everywhere. And I just have to produce work that will sell because now I have all this debt I got to pay off. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But I think tying your belief system into your work is so necessary to stay true to yourself, be it 
where you're showing at or the like actual work that you're producing. And I think maintaining that is once I realized that in my own work and my own practice, I was like, what the hell was I doing? Why was I putting myself through all these these other things that I couldn't stand behind? But right. now that I'm doing something that I do believe in, I feel great about it. Right. Yeah. And you want to feel good about your practice, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and where your work is going. And so, yeah, yeah, I think that's great. So, Cindy, can you talk about any other um, like pivotal moments that you feel you've had in the last couple of years, whether it was work-wise or... Um, like any kind of opportunities that have come up. Um, I know you've also done a handful of artist residencies. Um, yeah. So that's actually uh, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So I've, only, I've actually only done two residencies. And one was at the Vermont Studio Center. Um, I think I did that the summer after I got out of post-bac. That was, that was great, you know. But I did find that I actually um, need a lot of time to get used to a studio and just kind of like nest, you know, um, and before I can actually be productive. And then I need a little bit of time to actually clean up. Like I can't, I saw people at, at the Vermont Studio Center who would like set up and then within a couple of days they were like <laughs> painting a storm and, you know, and then they would like, you know, oh my God, we've got like 10 hours before we have to vacate and then their studio was still completely full and then they would get that done in 10 hours and like that was it, you know, I can't do that. I, I just can't. <laughs> Um, so the next time, and then I didn't apply for residencies for a while. And then when I was adjuncting, I just felt like I needed a break, you know, um, it was just like, I was so mentally exhausted. And so I was like, I'm going to give my, I'm going to try and give myself like a sabbatical. Um, so I, <laughs> I applied for Exactly. <laughs> so I applied for, uh, Anderson Ranch. And I applied for Bemis. And I didn't get into Bemis, but I did get into Anderson Ranch. And so, um, which was like hugely shocking. I wasn't expecting to get into either. I was thrilled. And I was actually, and the reason why I I applied to those two is because they're longer term, you know. So I I think, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head how long a residency at Bemis is, but um, the Anderson Ranch residency is like three months. And so I knew that, yeah, I know it's really substantial. So I knew that I I wanted to do something. If I was going to sort of decamp and leave my studio, Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be for a longer period of time so I could actually do things. Um, And I'd also heard fantastic things about Anderson Ranch and sort of like their facilities and um, the people who work there being incredibly uh, helpful and friendly. And they're all artists themselves, which I was like way into. But once I got that, I was actually going to not do it because this thought came into my head where I was like, oh man, if I leave for a semester, I'm not going to get any of my adjunct classes back, you know, like they're just going to disappear and I'm going to have to start at like square one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a really insidious thought. And I was like, but that's like slavery, you know, like I can't. So um, I I went to talk to my department chairs, um, both at College Park and at um, Micah. And and then I also talked to Fletcher Mackey at, at Micah because you know I, he's just very wise and I I like to go to him for advice um and so uh I I asked them and they were like I can't believe you're even doubting whether you should go and they're like you just you should just go and we'll figure it out when you get back you know yeah um so I I was so grateful that like my relationships with my chairs was 
good, you know, and yeah. that they were really supportive. But then I was like, but that totally makes sense because they're artists, you know, and they understand that this is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I like dropped my classes and I went off for three months and it was amazing. And that's where I actually started doing a lot of ceramic work because Anderson Ranch, mm-hmm. yeah, um, the ceramics, it started, it started as a ceramics residency. Um, and yeah, and Doug Caspier, who uh, is, is, sort of like the main guy over there. He, I think he runs pretty much the entire residency program, but he's also in charge of the ceramics um, portion. Uh, he is like, he's, I, I guess he's, he's like a big deal in the ceramics community and it was so great to work with him. And he had this, he built this amazing kiln yard. I've never seen anything like it before. <laughs> it was just incredible. And um, they were so open and like we got there and within a day of getting there, like we had orientation and he was like, you know, I know everyone is here for your own disciplines, but really don't be afraid to to cross over and, and experiment and try, try, you know, the facilities and other departments. I was really, I thought the ceramics guys were really cool. You know, they were always like really dirty and they're just like <laughs> cool kids. So I went over there and I just started hanging out with them and I hang out, hung out with the furniture guys too, which actually has impacted my current work a lot. So I started, yeah, so I started doing very rudimentary ceramics things like rolling out slabs and like placing them over rocks and, and like you know into corners and over pieces of architecture but it was actually really interesting because the ceramics residents would come over and be like what are you doing why are you doing that you know but then they would see like uh, my stuff coming out of the kiln they'd be like oh I never thought to do that you know um yeah. so I think there was yeah, this it's like that beginner's mind exactly to without all of this. yeah yeah preconceived ideas of what ceramics should be right kind of opened you up to making some really new things yeah and then but then they would be like oh you know if you actually want to do this try this you know and then they would actually give me technique to help me Mm. flesh out my ideas in a more sophisticated way so it was really beautiful it was wonderful and then I played a lot of badminton with the furniture there were two furniture residents and so we'd like go go to the studio like we'd have breakfast at like you know seven 30 we'd be in the stu- we'd do our chores because we had chores you know and then we'd be in the studio by like eight and then you know you'd have lunch at like for 30 minutes sometime in the day and then you would have dinner from 6 30 to like seven and then we'd play badminton from like seven to like midnight you know <laughs> um so, so just it was, as much as studio time basically it's just as much it's important <laughs> to have a balance you know um it's true. but it was it's true. so much fun it was so much fun and I got a lot of work done and I I I watched the furniture um, residents in their studios and I saw all their sketches and how they evolved and researched and developed their ideas for form and material. And I was able to like absorb a little bit of that and bring it back to my studio. And it's really influenced the way that I'm actually like working right now. So it was a hugely influential like three months, you know. Yeah. 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 It was great. It was so good. I feel like that's something that Nicole, I'm sure you feel this as well, but I know I've learned a lot from doing this podcast, just talking to people with so many different types of art making and so many different backgrounds and experience levels and be able to kind of take some of their knowledge and experience and apply it to my own practice. And it's been incredibly cool to just look at what I'm doing in a totally different, fresh way and being able to kind of challenge myself to 
change perspective. And I feel like it's it's so incredibly beneficial as an artist to interact with other artists working in very different ways because you can grow so much from each other in ways that you would never expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that community. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people realize that they miss most when they leave um, school is yeah. like having mm-hmm. people to actually make like make things with, you know, and, mm-hmm. and having that feedback and being able to see other people's process and have that kind of like discussion um, that's so normal in school that you don't even realize it's a thing until you're out of there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very Did true. Did you feel like a lot of people from your grad program um, stuck around the city? Did it also, going through that, help you to kind of carve out a place in Baltimore and establish that creative community for yourself there? Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, a lot of, I, most of the people that I, that were my grad, grad school community are still in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And like my studio mate right now, I actually love having a studio mate because of that very reason, you know, yeah. is John Latiano. And he was one of my, oh yeah, I my, love his work. my peers. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and he's fantastic to talk to, you know, hint, hint. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're always looking for recommendations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're studio mates and, you know, he's been around consistently and he actually has a thing at the Peel Museum right now, which looks like it's going to be fantastic. Uh, and a lot of my other friends have stuck around. A few people have left over like the five years that we've been out, six years that we've been out. Um, mm-hmm. But we we still talk. Like my whole D and D group is is my grad school friends, and so we'll like <laughs> so great. yeah. So it's still we still have yes. that community, and like I still mm-hmm. feel like I can run ideas by them, and they run ideas by me. So we still we we have that kind of like discourse, you know. But it is different when you're out. It's not as concentrated. Um, maybe with the exception mm-hmm. of John, um, especially over the summers, you know we we are there all the time and so we're always like giving each other uh feedback um and helping each other out and stuff uh but overall it's just less intense you know um and people start to have their own lives and it's a it's a different kind of dynamic but preserving a sense of that community whatever iteration that takes is I think like incredibly important yeah I wanted to ask too if your teaching schedule helped fuel your Uh, studio work just um, in having those summers off does that sort of become like a stay-at-home residency time for you yeah teaching throughout the year and then you get to really focus on your work in the summer Um, has it been pretty seasonal like that it has been pretty seasonal like that Um, I do get like some work done over the semester because um, Mm -hmm. especially with the with the adjuncting not so much because it was um, you have to commute and your teaching load is way heavier (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is always surprises people you know but I'm like no I was teaching like twice as much when I was an adjunct because you have to do that to make enough money to be able to like pay rent and stuff so now that I'm full time the workload is somewhat similar because you have committee work and sort of like school service and stuff like that but part of the way that you're evaluated is also on your practice so the school tries to give you the opportunity that you need to actually make work so uh the summers they're very respectful of summertime Mm -hmm. christmas like winter break um any breaks that we have it's like that's your time and please go to the studio and like make work you know and then with the semester i do get in maybe like three days a week into the studio but you know it's it's sporadic and I'll have this train of thought that starts to become kind of interesting and then I'll I'll not be there for like three or four days and then so it's just a little bit Mm -hmm. it's you know it's just I don't know 
it's too spotty to be really be able to sustain a thought process. So the summertime particularly is extraordinarily productive and intense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's why I think that's why a lot of artists, if you're not relying on your on your work to make a living, um, teaching is really the ideal. That's it's the ideal job unless you marry someone really rich and they're able to like, you know, (laughs) support you and give you a studio. (laughs) Yeah. Where's my rich husband? Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. He's not rich. (laughs) Well, he he has a rich soul. (laughs) Yeah, that's more important. That's better. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the Sondheim Prize you just got. Do you want yeah. to talk about... Congratulations. The- yes, Thank congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Do you want to talk about that process? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually a pretty standard application process. It's actually easier than, because you submit work. And I think that's it. You just you don't need you don't need any written materials for that first leg. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I also just wanna say like yeah. moving away from Baltimore, I've become so much more aware, I think, of how many opportunities there really are for individual artists in that city. Yeah. Um, which is incredible. Like there's the Sondheim Prize, the Baker Artist Awards, mm-hmm. I think now like the Ruby's Grants, mm-hmm. Creative Baltimore Fund or yeah. something like that. The Maryland State Arts Council. Grants, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Treywick, the, the Treywick Prize, and then there's Trey. the Painting Prize. So there's the Treywick, and then it's got a sister prize, which is the Painting Prize. There's a ton of opportunity for the population, you know, of this region. I think this area has like one of the most, the greatest amount of opportunities for for artists, mm-hmm. which is it's insane. Yeah. And for those listening, uh, we will put links to these on our website, so that way you. Especially if you are a Maryland or Baltimore artist, go check it out. Yeah. Get that yeah, money. Yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love that it is, I mean, obviously the quality of work is incredibly high and just, you know, seeing the shows every year, it's clear that that is really well deserved, but I, I do really appreciate that anyone can apply mm-hmm. to the Sondheim Award as oh, opposed yeah. to it being an invitation only. Yeah. I do really like that too. And I think pretty much all the awards are uh, sort of self-applications, um, so it's, it's really great and it does bring in a lot more of a diverse voice into the shows you know so yeah the application process was really simple and then you just kind of wait and then they get back to you and they're like either you know thank you for your application try again next year which is fine you know and that's happened to me a few times or it's like oh you're semi-finalist congratulations which is fantastic and that happened to me once you know and then Mm -hmm. or twice I guess and then they give you if you want to continue your application to try and be a finalist this is what you um need to submit and then it's still really simple I started sending new updated work with that second round yeah yeah so um the first round you don't submit a lot of work I think it's like was it like six images or something very small it's very it's very compact and then yeah it's not a lot I might maybe it's eight I can't remember but it's not a lot of images and then for the second round um you can submit up to 20 more 15 to 20 more images so you get to flesh out sort of just you know what the ethos of your practice is and so that's really great and then you can also then submit like this is my cv or actually maybe you don't even I think you said you can submit a cv um you definitely submit uh an artist name that's it 
you know, so wow. it's very simple, very direct. And I do really like that because I feel like the judges are really focusing a lot more on just like what the work is like rather than everything that's like around that, you know, which I think a lot of times is, is really a big part of the of the equation. Yeah. So, yeah. And then um, and then you just wait and you hear back from them pretty soon after. So it was a really it was a really very straightforward application process. And then this year, I was lucky enough to be chosen as a finalist. And so then they give you all the materials that you you need to submit. And it's, it's not again, it's again, not a ton of stuff. And it's like a lot of, you know, let's get insurance together for your work, you know, so it's just logistics, um, because they they do show either in the BMA or the Walters. So this year it was like in the Walters. And it's very organized. And they come to your studio, they do a studio visit, they're wonderful, beautiful people, you know, super friendly, very helpful. And you essentially just say, this is what I think I want to put in. And then and then based on that, um, they'll allot you a space. And they do try and be really fair and sort of like cater it to the type of work that you do. Um, and they also, I think, think a lot about like, like the flow of the work. So I think this year actually mm -hmm. was pretty nice, you know, um, just the way each project led into the other. So it didn't, it didn't necessarily feel very much like just a bunch of solo shows. It really did have, mm -hmm. you know, a, a nice fluidity. And then you have an install date and they have an installation crew who are, again, really helpful. And they like carried everything for me. And then uh, they, they took a lot of time going through because they don't want to import bugs into the the. Uh, museum uh, so they opened up all my boxes and they looked at everything and I had a carpet covered table um, so they kind of like you know inspected all the, the carpet and um, <laughs> and then rolled it in and then I was able to set up and I didn't have to hang any of my drawings which was the first time I've not had to do that and it was wonderful and I kind of just wish I could never hang my own drawings um, <laughs> But yeah, it was it was great. It was a very fluid, easy process. Yeah. So the jury comes in to talk to each of the finalists. And that was nerve wracking. That was really nerve wracking. I haven't had to do something like that since grad school. And they just they it's come into that fear of public speaking. Oh, it was so it was yeah, I was sure like shaking. So yeah, it was like 30 minutes. So very short. The jurors were incredibly friendly. And they really sort of went out of their way to make you feel at ease. But they did want to ask you about your work. And it, it felt like a very genuine conversation. It, they were all very kind of like invested mm -hmm. and present. I do have a funny story to tell. Um, but it's also slightly embarrassing. So I'm debating the but I'll tell you guys because it's a it's a really funny story. So um, my interview was actually like, I was I don't know why I think I was like so stressed out for so long, you know, so I got like really emotional. And I was talking about content that uh, I usually don't talk about, you know, um, like my work, it just is starting to take this much more self reflective path. Uh, so and and I was like, in my artist statement, it, it talks a little bit about it. But I'm like thinking a lot about growing up at a specific point in time in a specific place in a certain type of like family and then like you know give that giving me a very particular view of the world and then coming to Baltimore and having that all upended and like you know so anyway I got a little emotional and like a little bit like I I, I yeah well anyway so and then afterwards I went outside and I was like just kind of like trying to breathe. And I got in my car, uh, like one of the judges had to give me a hug afterwards. And he was like, it's okay, you know, like, don't worry. It's you're it's he's like, this is not, it's not such a big deal. Like, you know, and yeah. so I went outside and um, I was in my car and I was just like, 
chilling for a second and then I just put my car in reverse to get out and I like banged into the car behind me and I was like I was like oh my god and so then I got out of the car and I like I just started crying a little bit you know and I was like I'm so sorry I didn't see you there and that was so idiotic because it was this huge truck it was enormous. Like, there's no way I wouldn't have seen it if I'd looked in the mirror. Um, but it was this really nice lady, and she came out, and she was like, oh, honey, if this is like... Not one of the like, judges. <laughs> no, not one of the judges. Wouldn't that have been... But one of the judges was there. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, so it I know. Yeah. But and I was so embarrassed. So she was like, she gave me a hug, and she was like, oh, sweetie, if this is the worst thing that happens to me today, then it's a good day. Um, and then I turned around and one of the judges was there and I was just like, oh my God. And I just got in the car and I like drove away. (laughs) (laughs) Just like pretend you didn't see that. Yeah. So that was a good, that was a good process. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, we've all had those moments. At least now, in light yeah. of how everything turned out, we, you can say that hopefully it just came across as really authentic. Yeah. And there's really nothing to be embarrassed about. Because <laughs> <laughs> either because of, <laughs> in part, or despite it, you still want yeah. this one Yeah. Maybe yeah. that was it. Maybe they were like, oh, she may have wrecked her car. She might need a new one. She, she Right. This. Yeah. She could <laughs> really give her a break. that money. Yeah. She can't stop crying. So, you know, <laughs> let's give her something good to cry about. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the lottery question, what, yeah. how will you use the grant money? Is it going to car repairs, paying off loans, <laughs> general living expenses, or are you funding an exciting new project? The car was totally fine. It was just Perfect. a little tap. It was like, good, it good. didn't leave a mark on either of the cars. So that was actually, that was actually fine. I do really need some tools. You know, I think the money is going to go to very practical things. So mm-hmm. like, I'd love to actually get a, a table saw that I, I adopted my friend's table saw. Um, so <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's functional, but that's probably the most that you can say about it. Um, yep. So I would love one that actually, you know, is pretty effective and that I can do stuff with. I just need like more tools because I am doing more construction. Um, so I need to almost like, you know, uh, transform my studio from very much this drawing studio to more of like a, you know, a studio can, that can straddle sculpture and drawing at the same time. And then I really would love to take a trip to Japan to um, visit hey. some of the old, I know, because of my my new interest in ceramics I love Japanese ceramics and so I'd love to go and visit some really old ceramic towns um, because Mm. there are these towns that have kind of like built up over uh, around um, specific approaches to to pottery um, and there are like old kilns and stuff like that and I would love to just go and see um, just how things are done there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah so um and plus like i i love japan i've only gone there as like a a tourist you know like to mm-hmm. just eat and have fun but it's been it's it's so beautiful and the food is amazing and i just like to go there um for kind of like more research purposes um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah yeah do you have any tools and resources or strategies that you use in practicing more of like the business side of your art making that are really helpful? That's actually something that I am not so good with because I've just never thought of my practice as like a money making thing. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's, yeah, it doesn't have much commercial value for me. My sculptures are, are really, I can't imagine anyone buying those, you know? Um, (laughs) It's not something that you would put in your house, you know? Um, And I, I, 
I honestly like, so since I started showing a little bit more, I have thought a little bit about like, okay, what do I want the life of my work to be after it leaves my studio? I've felt a little bit ambivalent about like the idea of it going into these like private collections where um, mm-hmm. like no one will really ever see it, you know? And I know yeah. if you, if you, a work is, is acquired by a museum, the chances are it's going to spend a lot of years in storage. So it's not yeah. that different, but there's always that potential that it will be put on public view. People will be able to come and see it. It can be shared, you know, it can be loaned, like stuff like that. And I, I like that idea a lot more than the former, the first that, you know, so I think that confuses the sort of the business side of my studio a little bit more, Mm -hmm. if it even ever becomes a thing, you know, like it could just be that I spend most of my time showing like independently, and then my work just comes back to my studio and it gets reconstituted or, you know, whatever into new things, or it just gets retired or something like that you know or I I piece it or I I I sort of like piece it out as sort of like trades or gifts or you know something like that that aspect of my studio is really underdeveloped and um, it's just not something that I've I've really focused on especially um, now that I I am teaching full-time and I can make a living with teaching you know even more so I'm like I'm not even worried about sort of like that aspect of my studio I'm just gonna I just want to like experiment and you know do things that I think is interesting there but who knows like in the future it could change you know but I I figure I'll deal with that when that when that happens yeah but I don't think my idea about like my work going into only private collections will will change like that just sits a little Mm -hmm. strangely with me yeah and I think there is a really beneficial side to that and the like gallery or museum world is always so foreign to me like aside from the few shows that I've been in while I was in school because now I'm very much focused on like doing craft shows and like trying Mm -hmm. to create work that I can sell in you know retail stores and do big wholesale accounts and stuff but I think sometimes I worry that the financial pressure that I put on my art can kind of stunt my ability to be creative and experimental and like what you were talking about before, like giving yourself the opportunity to fail. Mm -hmm. Because I keep thinking like, I don't have time to fail. Right. I I only have time to make work that will make me money. Yeah. And I think that there is something to be said about giving your work the freedom to breathe. Mm -hmm. I look forward to the day that I can do that. (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. know when it will be or how it will look. And I guess that's maybe how I view my like photography work and then my fiber work. It's like all the money maker. But I I appreciate that side of it because I'm like, that's the goal one day. I don't know what it looks like, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it's just, there is something really appealing about that way of working, you know, where Mm -hmm. it's like you are, you're just wholly invested in creative work, you know, even if it is like part of your practice is you're really kind of like relying on that for commercial value, but you're still always you're always making things, you know? And like, I think that is like for so many people, like honestly, me included, like that is a an enormous goal, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone just like goes about it a little bit differently and mm-hmm. the balance just falls, you know, different for everyone. Yeah, it's also that question of money versus time. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people say they want to be a full-time artist mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe what 
you might hear from that is they want their work to solely sustain themselves and what they really mean is they just want more time Mm -hmm. to be able to devote to their work but those are two different things so I think that the way that you described your role as a teacher um, and working for you know colleges around other artists who really value that work as well um, sounds amazing because there is that value placed on the time that you do spend in the studio and Mm -hmm. that you know allows you to do that um obviously not all day every day throughout the year but that you have these seasonal shifts where you can spend more time on your work yeah uh, in the summer and then you know of course throughout the year you're teaching as well yeah I also wanted to ask just in the last couple of months has there been any kind of a shift for you that you've noticed as far as the announcement of the Sondheim Prize um earlier in the summer and conjunction with Artscape and has that that changed anything else as far as like receiving invitations to other shows or shifted your practice in any way no actually uh it's still pretty new you know so Mm -hmm. I don't know if something will happen in sort of the months or the year to come But honestly, my practice, like it was weird for and there was a lot of attention for like uh, a week or so, you know, and I started to get really uncomfortable for that, you know, by the time that week was over. But then it just totally chilled out. And then I had this other show. um, I've I my work is actually en route right now um, to uh, Eugene, Oregon, um, to go to Ditch Projects for a show. Yeah. um, So and I needed to complete work for that show so then I just got all stressed out again and it felt pretty normal you know um and then yeah just back to normal just the same level of anxiety as always you know and and then the semester yeah right and then the (laughs) semester started and then it was just like I haven't had time to really you know dwell on anything yeah and in terms of shows I've had shows lined up since before the Sondheim so other than that I I don't have any new shows you know um Mm -hmm. after after January, which actually I'm like kind of glad for because things have been a little bit like, you know, jam packed. um, And I haven't actually had time to just go to the studio and like experiment and like Mm -hmm. do these do these little, you know, like playful things and be able to actually like, again, just like fail, you know, like everything I've done has had to be be able to like go to a show. So I'm really looking forward to just shifting gears a little and going back into like research mode for a little while. And I've deliberately not applied for any shows, you know, and I fully Mm -hmm. expect that I will still need to, for the most part, apply for exhibition opportunities. Like I don't think that the Sondheim will open doors like that for me for the most part, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, which I'm totally cool with, you know, Um, the money, like getting that monetary award is enormous. And I'm like, super grateful for it. And I can't wait to actually like use tools that I don't have, you know, so yeah. Yeah, that'll be great. <laughs> oh, the one thing that I am looking forward to doing is um, I will have enough money to like go to Penland or Aramont or Haystack or one of those like craft oh. schools um, yeah. over the over the next summer because I've been wanting to do that for a few years, but it's just like you know I haven't had the money to do it, so mm-hmm. this will be this will be a good opportunity for that too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any advice that you? would want to give or that's been given to you that's been super impactful? So something that I do think about a lot, especially when I'm in the studio or like when I am going through kind of like a a spell of just getting rejections after rejections after rejections is um, my, so Francis, my grad school director, um, 
whenever she came into the studio, like she was incredibly critical as well, you know, and she could be pretty brutal, but um, she would always say like, it doesn't matter if you get shows, it doesn't matter if you get awards, if you're not in the studio working and doing work that's interesting to you and your community, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's all like meaningless, you know? Um, So I think that is really driving my attitude to a lot of my studio practice. Mm-hmm. and to my teaching too so like I try to teach from this place of like you know, like authentic interest you know yeah that that was probably the best advice that I got like ever <laughs> for my practice yeah yeah and Cindy is a fantastic teacher and I know this because in prepping for the podcast and uh, googling you online the website uh, rate my professor oh my god kind of far <laughs> down the list um Nothing but glowing reviews. So your students love you. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> I also want to say that I came across it as well because I was like, wait, oh how God. do I find her work? <laughs> and somehow on the rating system, and I don't know exactly what it means, but by your name, there's a little chili pepper for like <laughs> hotness. Oh and I don't know if that means like your students think you're hot or if that means that like... <laughs> The content that you provide is just on fire. But I would like to. <laughs> I'm gonna prefer to think that the content is on fire. Like I'm in my <laughs> mind, that's what I'm gonna latch on to. <laughs> I don't know what that means either. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm sure there's an explanation. Like, oh, chili pepper means that this teacher is lit, or it means that this teacher is smoking hot. <laughs> Who knows? That's maybe maybe hilarious. your lessons are extra spicy. Yeah, yeah, or my critiques are, you know, pretty oh, snazzy, maybe. Yeah. That could be it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to tell our audience where they can find your work? Online, my website is uh, just cindychang.works. And I actually recently updated. I'm a terrible, I don't know anything about web design. So (laughs) my website is actually pretty horrendous. I would not advise anyone to like take it as a model, but it does have like images of my work on it. And then I do have an Instagram account too. Cindy HK Chang. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) That's your Instagram. Thank you, Amanda. (laughs) No problem. Cindy, thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you. for sharing your life story. Um, (laughs) This has been really fun. Yeah, I hope We're really excited to share it. Thank you, yeah. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring this episode. Storyblocks' mission is to provide creative content that everyone can afford and to be the first place creatives go when starting a new project. They offer royalty-free stock images, audio, and video content for your creative projects. What makes Storyblocks different is that artists receive 100% commission on their work. Go to videoblocks.com slash beyondthestudio to take advantage of their triple bundle offer for the year. That's videoblocks, B-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash beyondthestudio. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. We encourage you to sign up for our email list because it's got all the information that we don't share anywhere else. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. I don't know why, but things happen to me that's just so embarrassing. 
So like, uh, I think it was like last year um, with my drawing class, I was up on a stool. This was like week two or week three. I was up on a stool, like trying to close the door, the window, um, and I fell off the stool. I fell off the stool. I was standing on the stool and I fell off. And oh yeah, God. and then I just like lay, I wasn't hurt or okay? anything. I was totally fine. Okay. But my students like were like, <gasps> and they came over and I was just lying on the ground and I, I just told them to leave me there. <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. Yeah.